You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Welcome, all you wiretappers out there. Back here in the studio of Gangland Wire, I've got my good friend, part time co host, Camulus Robinson, on the Zoom call here and on the audio. So, welcome, Cam. It's great to have you back. I'm glad to be here as always, Gary. Really? We haven't done this for a while. I know the wiretappers have noticed I've gotten a couple of comments. Well, where's Cam at on the one of the YouTube things? So <laughs> they miss you. <laughs> yeah, I miss being here. All right. So I've been interviewing a lot of authors here lately. Seems like everybody's got a true crime book and there are a lot of authors out there and they're all wanting to be on podcast. I kind of I don't like take everybody. I did a real interesting one, a gal named Debbie Applegate, who did a book on Polly Adler, who was a madam in New York City during the 20s, 30s, and 40s, all the way up to the 50s, really. And she connected to all the mob guys, of course, Luciano, and she was a good friend of Dutch Schultz. And, and this gal did a huge a tome, I would call it, of yeah. work on this subject. And so I did that, and I'm watching the CBS Saturday morning or Sunday morning show, and there she is being interviewed by John Dickerson. So <laughs> I felt pretty good. Wow. In the big leagues. Really? I immediately, I'd had that schedule for about two weeks from now. I immediately put it out for right now because mm-hmm. this is how this works. Is like Paul Derry, who was, uh, you know, has a Coastal West Publishing, who you're working with on your book. Right. Uh, his wife, actually, I think she does most of the work. And yeah, I think he does promotion. I'm not sure exactly how that worked broken down. But anyhow, Paul Derry is a former informant for the Mounties and RCMP and has his own book and has written another book and done a lot of work teaching other policemen how to develop informants and a really a sharp guy and a good guy. And all of a sudden I got all kinds of hits. I went about triple or quadruple hits on the interview I did with Paul, which was a couple of years ago. So I got hold of him. He said, well, he was just on one of these locked up abroad show is the name. Oh, yeah. It his name. So people see those, see uh, great big That's platforms. Right. They see them, then they start Googling them. And so you got to get your name out there. You got to get that you've done something with that. You got to get them out there. I tell you what, folks, it's a constant battle to, to get attention to the podcast. Every time I get my name out there, I pick up a bunch of subscribers because people start listening from that and they like it. So. Anyhow, that's just a little aside, little interesting story about running the podcast and doing a show. And he's uh, behind the curtain, behind the curtains, little look behind the curtains. And Cam's been a part of this show for the last couple of years. And I really appreciate you, Cam. You helped me out a lot that's when I was doing that one movie, the one that's just coming out in my film festival, which will all be done and over by the time they get this. That's right. I tell everybody, you're my rabbi, Gary. You brought me me up, so you brought me into the life. How do you refer to me on your wiretaps? I got a code name on the wiretaps. Am I the rabbi? That's right. You know who was a rabbi? Was Alan Dorfman. They called him the rabbi. Really? With the straw man wiretaps and the skimming. Rabbi. So anyhow, Cam's worked up a really interesting story. We were talking one day, I think this was this was really your idea that there were a couple of instances where the FBI had leaks from their offices and they leaked out names of informants back in the 70s. And Jimmy Fradiano heard about one of them and he knew he had done some talking. And probably one of the reasons that he ended up coming in and becoming an actual witness and testifying and going into the witness protection program 
But back in the 60s, Cam and I were just talking about this before we started the show. I know back in the 50s, well, the 40s and 50s, but the 50s a lot in the early 60s, the FBI and local intelligence units were using a lot of wiretaps and hidden microphones. When I came into the unit, we still had some of that technology there. It was pretty rudimentary. We never used it because in 1968, they came out with criminal penalties. If you wiretapped anybody or listened to any conversations using electronic means. That's the key words. There's electronic means. If you can listen through the wall or through a window, you're good. But as Bill Owsley did in that hotel room at the airport, our local agent, Bill Owsley, put a glass. He actually put a glass up against the hotel room wall and picked up a lot of information when, uh, was it Alan Dorfman? Joe Lombardo. Lombardo was Joe Lombardo. And meeting with Nick, I guess, Nick Savella, and and he he picked up some pretty good information. But anyhow, when you had those wiretaps and bugs, you didn't really need informants so much. You had that. And that's how you would write a report. One of the old timers told me, he said, that's how we'd write a report. If we'd used a bug or a wiretap, since we can't use that in court, we would say an informant told me this and told me that. Now, you can't really go into court with a third person informant like that, but you can use it for probable cause to move on to something else. And that's what guys used to do. I don't know about the FBI. I can't speak for the FBI. But I can't speak for some of our guys back in the 60s that they could do something like that. But then 1968, they passed this Omnibus Crime Control Bill, Safe Streets Act of 1968. John Mitchell, of all people, was the attorney general who would end up going to jail himself. <laughs> all under. But there was, there was a huge kickback on crime, all the crime out of the 60s. And really, a lot of it was because of the riots in 1968. All the politicians got on board with this, let's have a big crime bill. So they came up with this and they legalized wiretapping, but you had to have probable cause. And it takes quite a little bit of probable cause to get it, but you can get one now. And like any electronic overhearing conversations via electronics, and they passed that. Well, well, then you lost your old informant. <laughs> and the FBI, by then, they, were, they had developed informants, but you really had to start developing informants now because you didn't have your old informant. And people pretty much, there was a criminal penalties associated with this. So people really didn't. They didn't continue to illegally wiretap people. And believe me, Bobby Kennedy, who was the attorney general before that, they used a lot of them on Hoffa and, and a lot of those people like that. So you didn't have, you had to start developing informants. And during that time is when they, they had developed what they called the top hoodlum squad. Finally, after 1957, 58, going after the mob and by 68. They had this wiretap law. Nobody knew how to use it. They couldn't use the legal ones anymore. They were trying to develop informants. And finally, by the 70s, 72, 73, really, it wasn't really used extensively till probably 75 or 76. Used a little bit, but not extensively. And because what they needed then was the RICO statute. And all this is what really destroyed the mafia, as we yeah. once knew it, was the RICO statute and Title III laws, which yeah. is what we call a wiretap or any electronic surveillance. It's Title III under the U.S. code. It's called Title III. So that kind of gets us to where we are today, where they've got these lists of informants that these top echelon informants and something Pam found out, and I didn't really realize, is they had these lists of informants in every office practically throughout the United States. They would have a list of these informants. So if you were looking for some information in another city, you could go and look up that city, I guess, and find out who they had. Is that correct, Cam? Yeah, and there was a lot of that because just the nature of the mob reaching out, or let's say 
Bill Asley needed some information on Chicago, they would wire it over and here's a list of some guys and here's the informant just in case you needed it. So he'd have an updated list of certain things that were happening in Chicago, plus guys and what information had been given. So it was that office, that information would then be in the Kansas City office. Or let's say somebody in Cleveland wanted some information. So here's a list of informants in this city that might help with your whatever investigation. And here's some recent information we've gleaned. So now that information is in the Cleveland office. And then those that information would be filed. So you've got these miscellaneous files all over. And because the mob reaches out, the FBI needed information about different cities. It was more of a reaching out about information, keeping data. And through that, they just had stacks of information in each field office pertaining to other mob cities around the uh, country and who the informants were. That's how they developed the web of investigations at the FBI. If you read those old files, I mean, they were pretty extensive knowing what yeah. was going on around. Yeah. You can get by all the redactions that they have in there. <laughs> right. That's damn I love picking up a page and find the whole page is redacted. That's right. black ink. And you know, there's some interesting stuff. It probably yeah, right. didn't mean anything now, but it and you know, it was interesting stuff, but anyhow. So, and you know, like in local intelligence units, they had this LEIU or law enforcement intelligence units organization in which we had a book and everybody had to be vetted to be in it. Sharing information across state lines to people you could trust was important mm-hmm. because the mob was linked nationally and they operated yeah. together nationally. Nobody didn't, nobody really wanted to believe that for a long time till after Appalachian, but they believed it after that. I think the agents were certainly vetted, but a lot of times these clerks and typists that they would get in there, they're just young women who were, eight, as we'll see here, 18 to 25, just, just young women who had gotten out of typing school or who had, were really just, just getting started with their lives and they'd get a job with the government straight out. So the agents would be one thing, well-trained and everything, but you could have, as we'll see, 18-year-old fresh out of typist school who gets a job with the FBI and then would also then have access to all of that information that is in the office. And who's going to suspect a young lady of doing anything with a bunch of top echelon informant information? Yeah. So that brings us to your kind of your first one. It was in Newark, New Jersey, this 18-year-old Irene Kuznetsky, I believe I'm pronouncing that right, was working as a typist in the Newark field office. Mm-hmm. What happened with Eileen so, Irene? Her husband works at a car dealership with uh, a guy and this guy happens to be in the crew of a Genovese guy named John DeGilio, who is a New Jersey-based Genovese mobster. And of course, his guys are always on the lookout. One of his guys realizes that Beats Wandrak, who works in this car dealership, realizes this other guy has a wife who works with the FBI. So he sort of cozies up to him, gets to be buddies and says, you know, she might have access to something. Maybe she doesn't, but it could be worth a lot to you. There'd be money in it, is the quote. If you can get us just different kinds of information she might have. And he gave him some names. He said, if you could find anything about this John DeGilio or Joe Ziccarelli, any kind of information you could find. Now, Irene was a little bit hesitant at first. She didn't like the idea. She just had this good job and all. But I mean, it turns out her husband, I mean, he really beat her black and blue until she agreed to come out. So with him, it was the greed, but then the mobs also using the intimidation. Now, it was just their standard way of collecting money or whatever. But in this case, they were using it to get information out of the FBI. This went on for three years. Wow, man, that was... Uh, <laughs> just grabbing whatever she could and bringing it out. I'm looking over your notes here. It looked like you weren't really getting all that much money, getting a hundred bucks a delivery <laughs> for whatever she could find. Right, right. They got $200 as a Christmas bonus one time. I mean, really just <laughs> mobs not known for generosity. 
<laughs> but it's difficult to track down just what information she got out because a lot of times she would just copy things down. When the FBI finally got her in 73 or 74, they debriefed her as well as they could. But this is two years of her writing down funny sounding Italian names and, yeah. and addresses and things. So they really never got a handle on just how much information she got out and what went out. And they did prosecute them and they got two of DeGilio's guys. But of course, DeGilio didn't stick on him. He was acquitted. And then, of course, two years later, two guys in DeGilio's crew who had been talking to the FBI were both gunned down in the middle of the streets. And as we'll see, a lot of guys who had been talking about the Genovese family or who were associated with it really did end up dying over the next two and three years between 1973 and 1976, 77 around the country. And this was really the knock set the domino going to where we started seeing a bunch of informants. People die in the mob world all the time. Maybe this fact that they're informant, but this really set the ball rolling. Yeah, that might go under the radar for a while, because like you say, they live that life anyhow. It would take, you know, like if you had one agent that was working with maybe couple of three of the same guys that all got killed. They might notice that, but if they're all working with different agents and yeah. you're like work with one agent and he gets transferred and the next agent has it, usually they'll hand them off to somebody, but they may not pay much attention to him yet. Or he, he was supplying such low level stuff that right. they kind of forgot about him. I see, saw that happen, but that it's written down on the file. Once they saw that, that he'd been, somebody'd been talking to the FBI then you know that they're dead meat back in those days, especially. It's interesting you say you talk about low-level information. I think when people hear informants, like these guys have these altruistic means and they want to go out and really right a lot of the wrongs that they've done, I think that that's really not why they would become informants. I mean, just like anything in the criminal world, these guys, they become informants to get one over on their competition. They're not any have any function about doing the right thing or helping the Fed. The Fed is just another tool in their arsenal to take out their criminal competition. So if this guy's running, if you've got a competitor in the mob, you might want to feed him a little bit of information about the guy who you just lost a sit down to, or you've got some guy whose gambling action is getting into yours. His name might find its way into the next reports you give to the FBI. And if you don't have any information, you just give them some piddly stuff that they probably already have. So, I mean, these informants, and as much as the FBI was playing with these informants, the informants were playing the same game, too. Oh, I think man. it was, uh, you know about chasing, chasing. That's how it works, Cal. That's how it works, Cal. Who's being used more, me or the informant? <laughs> 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 I had a couple of three guys like that. It was, and they give you all this piddly stuff, but you just keep, they kind of give you enough to keep you titillated that maybe they'll come in with something really good. I remember this one guy and he came in with something good, but I couldn't get anybody to act on or do anything about it. It's a dicey world working with those informants and what you're talking about, getting rid of the competition. I mean, we have to look no further than Whitey Bulger yep. in, in Boston and then that agent working with him and how, you know, it's dicey business working very closely with informants because they're constantly trying to compromise you and suck you in. And I remember this guy, he was wanting to give me stuff. Let me give you this. Let me give you that. No, no, I don't want that, dude. No, no, I don't. I don't need that. And that happens a lot. Or then as far as informants, sometimes agents or policemen, they hang out and drink too much in the wrong bars. The mobs always out there listening. And yeah. prying and looking, yeah. just like the intelligence unit guys were always out there listening and looking and prying and talking to people, trying to develop friends just to get gossip and little tidbits. You need this huge web 
of sources just to get little tidbits. And the mob's exactly like that. And that's what they were doing here. They were just looking yeah. for little tidbits. And all of a sudden, they hit a banana. Every once in a while, you hit a bonanza. And that's they right. hit really a bonanza. Yeah. So yeah, they really, to tap right into the FBI at this point, when things were really, like you said, I mean, between the, the anonymous crime bill and everything, I mean, this was the time to be going through the FBI's informant yeah, list. Really. We had in one of the wiretaps during the skim investigation, they had a guy named PJ Robosti who had a strip bar here. And they were talking about PJ said, well, he said he had an agent tell him there was 19 legal wiretaps going at the time. They go, really? Well, where are they? Well, that's city market. Probably. I don't know. And one and quirky, I think, said, yeah, they always have my phone tap. But see, there was some agent in that titty bar got drunk and was talking out of school because there were mm-hmm. a ton of wiretaps going at that time. So they're just always. Yeah, they're, they're watching. They're listening and waiting. So I don't know whatever happened. I'm sure they figured out who that was. I think who it was. He disappeared. Right. He, was, he was transferred shortly after that. <laughs> Got an office up in Nome, Alaska. We want you to check out. <laughs> so I see here you've learned about, they know that they're trying to get into their files and they notice a rash of 22 caliber killings. Would that be those guns that, was it Jackie Cerrone in the outfit in Chicago that had that connection down in Southern yeah. Florida? Yeah, it was a place called the Tam Miami Gun Shop. They started tracing these two murders I just mentioned, these guys in Giglio's crew. They found those guns and they traced them down to uh, a gun shop in Miami, which I looked up. It was the Tam Miami. I you talk about digging through FBI reports to find the name of that place. So it closed down in 77, but all of a sudden, you see in... Uh, Fratiano's book, he's talking about how the then boss of Cleveland, he's passing on a conversation between the boss of Cleveland and Jackie Cerrone, the underboss of Chicago. Yeah, was and that John, John Scalise? No, this is after Scalise. This is uh, Blackie Licavoli. Oh, okay. So Licavoli of Cleveland is talking to Cerrone of Chicago, and Cerrone has a connection down in Miami that can get 22s and that can make silencers. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the guns found throughout from Wisconsin to California to New York over the next two years, there was a lot of 22 prior to this, you would find a lot of the murders were 45. They would use a lot of 45s because after World War II, there were 45s everywhere for very cheap. And there were a fair amount of 38s because you could get old police revolvers and just 38s a common caliber. But really, the 22 high standard was designed for the FBI. It was a target pistol. But it could also, it was designed to fix a silencer on it for the the CIA. And that was, those guns started making the rounds. You know, the criminal world keeps up with with the latest and greatest. And so those high standards, looks like a Colt Woodsman. They really started popping up everywhere. And damn, they weren't all traced back to this Tamiami gun shop down in Miami, Florida. Interesting. A lot of these murders, whether they were related to informants or what, all these guns were coming from the same place. What about... They had an agent or, I mean, an agent, a clerk or something in the Cleveland office. Yeah. So it was deal the, with that. The Cleveland office was where it was really, where it got to be really big. So while you've got this going on in Newark, New Jersey, around 1972, you have another clerk in Cleveland and she also has access to information. She's just gone through a divorce, was awarded some property, but because of some hangups in the court, so mess of situation. She's talking to a guy at a Christmas party 
who just happens to be mobbed up. And he says, oh, well, you work at the FBI. Well, you know, I've got friends down at the courthouse. I could help you out. Do you ever see these names? And so same sort of thing. He works his way in somehow through her boyfriend, realizes that she has uh, connections to the FBI and she makes her way in. And the guy, Ken Sciarcia, he works for Tony Libler Liberatore, who is a, a big guy in the Cleveland underworld. And Liberatore works for Blackie Licavoli, who would take over after John Scalish died and he would become the boss. So Jerry Linhart was the name of the woman in Cleveland, and she got all kinds of information. Now, this is the one where Fradiano, who was Fradiano out of Los Angeles, had close ties to Cleveland. He came back in town and they said, hey, take a look at this. And there's a whole list of names. And he said, well, that, that information came from, that's Bump and Sarah out of San Diego. And they said there was a documentary that Rick Perello did. And a lawyer talked about, oh, I saw that list of names. But so they were made guys all over this report. As part of the top echelon informant program, they had made guys all over. So once Jerry Linhart started going, if you time it back, made guys all over the country started disappearing, especially people associated with Cleveland. So in between the Newark and the Cleveland, there was a lot of reporting in the newspapers and the in Time magazine talking about somebody seems to be killing informants. The FBI doesn't know if a clerk has leaked the report or anything. And then this report comes, then they catch Jerry Linhart a couple of years later in 77. But I mean, you've got guys all over the country dying based on her. Yeah, that's when Bump Zero was killed. They figured out that he was informant at the time. And actually, Ciarelli, I mean, Ciarelli Fradiano was supposed to participate in that. And they had been longtime friends. Yeah. And also during this time, this is when, uh, what's his name? Green got killed. Danny Green, yeah. Danny Danny Green got killed. And Fradiano really had something to do with that. He kind of helped set that up. That's one of the cases they were about to make on him. Yeah. Danny Green's name was on that report. You know, there were a lot of interesting things. You look at at Giancana, there's a lot of information about that. But the church commission summons came, I don't know, a day or two before Giancana died. But there were reports out there. The FBI had information that Giancana was going to be called before the church commission. And it's not known how much the mob knew about how much work he had done and his work with the FBI, but the FBI would have had all that information. So there were plenty of reasons the mob might have wanted to kill Giancana, but the Church Commission was set up to examine CIA overreaches in power. And of course, Giancana, as the boss of Chicago, CIA had reached out and asked him to kill Fidel Castro. And we're going to subpoena him. Giancana was murdered. This could, could not have had something to do with Giancana's murder because his name was included on the FBI's information. We do know a guy named Augie Mancini who was in uh, Milwaukee. He was also a top echelon informant. He died. And according to the FBI information, Chucky Nicoletti, Paul Shiro were the ones who were responsible for that murder. That was 22 caliber handgun, one of those same handguns, just like Giancana was. Correct. Correct. And then shortly thereafter, Nicoletti himself You've heard about this too, that Nicoletti was informing a lot of information, contemporaneous reports, discussions, the guys say, you know, Chucky Nicoletti was an informant. A lot of names would have been on this. And then there's a lot of people who who were not top echelon, but who were still informants. This guy, Jack Molinas, who was a big gambling boss. He had fixed basically every college game. He had, they thought he had ruined college basketball for a while in the early sixties. And they based the movie, The Longest Yard off of him when he was time in prison. He was a big oh, really? athlete. He was murdered. He wasn't informed, but he was also a heavy gambler. So there's a lot of this overlap in where people's lives and their informant status, either one could have gotten them killed, but it's just one of those things you live the life. 
but 20 people who had been providing some sort of information to the FBI were killed, most of them with these 22 calibers from the same gun shop. So there was was clearly some coordination. Right. And this was all from about 1975 to what, 1978 or so. It wasn't a long period of time. Correct. A lot of people have seen the photo of the gun that was used to kill Gene Kana. I've heard people in Chicago who said that they had built that silencer, but they might have assembled it. I'm sure that silencer came out of Miami. I'm 90% sure that that gun came out of Miami. What it shows to me is that the mob was coordinating. Clearly, if Cerrone had these, the underboss of Chicago had this communication, has this upline for pistols in Miami, and then those pistols are later being used in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and New York, and California. It just, that really shows how much coordination the mob had across the country up until the 70s. I mean, that's the kind of stuff you and I like to go into, Gary, yeah, how, much, really. how much they were networking. Yeah, I think it's more than we ever realize, and especially the general mm-hmm. public realizes these connections. I just talked with a friend of mine today, and he's out of it now, but I mean, he, it's just amazing the connections. They know each yeah. other in these different major cities. And it goes way back and I can't really explain it, but somehow it's like you got like the, some kind of a secret sign or something with each other. I think it really, it's like no one. And I watched him talk to a guy and he started dropping little tidbits about when he'd been in prison, what he'd been in prison for and who he knew in prison. This other guy, you know, I could tell this other guy was just relaxing, you know, longer the conversation went, the more this, (laughs) this other guy relaxed, who was actually a mobster mob affiliate from Des Moines who just happened to be in Kansas City and he and my friend and I were just sitting in this coffee shop and this guy just happened to walk in and my friend said hey don't I know you and and this guy was like real defensive at first and then my friend starts dropping names and his little bit of his history and it's like this guy just relaxed he knew he was around a brother yeah he did I just kept my mouth shut (laughs) I was like a fly on the wall on that one (laughs) I tell you, my friends got guts, you know, he just kept going and kept going. (laughs) But as he tells everybody, you know, I told everybody in Kansas City, they know I know you. (laughs) So, uh, and they trust me. I'm never going to drop anything good. (laughs) I said, well, don't. I said, I said, yeah, I want to know more, but I don't want to know more. I don't want to know too much. Right. That life's behind me. I don't want to know what I don't know. (laughs) But it's pretty amazing. That story that Dennis McDonald told about how a couple of guys found Fradiano when he was hiding. So apparently they had some kind of a line in on him. He was in an obscure place. And, you know, he says on that show how Rudy Giuliani said, oh, no, it's impossible. And he said, I know it's possible because we got a couple of guys. He was referring to this leak. It was still going on. And I think it was sort of through Fradiano. And I, I read a book by an FBI guy who worked in that office now. In that book, the FBI doesn't detail how much information got out, just how diligent they were in stopping the leak and how put out counter information. But I mean, it went on for a couple of years. And the retired agent also doesn't mention how many people were killed across the country who happened to be informants. He he left that part out. There's another problem in figuring this kind of thing out is sometimes somebody wants them dead for another reason. Yes. If you know a guy has been informing, you just you know, you can still work with him. You just need to know that. Yes. You don't have to do something about him. Matter of fact, you can use him to put out misinformation because these guys are Machiavellian. I know Nick was Machiavellian. They put out erroneous information trying to deflect attention. 
when they killed this oldest Spiral brother, they went around telling people that his old ball partner, Curly Mitz, is the one that killed him. And Curly mm-hmm. Mitz got killed about that time. So you couldn't go back and ask Curly Mitz about it. I mean, they're yeah. Machiavellian. Yeah, that's crazy. It, and Jimmy the Bomber guitar had basically been shelved. And shortly before he died, the head of auto theft investigation in Chicago found a bomb outside of his front door. And then shortly thereafter, Jimmy the Bomber Katara, even though he was shelved and was put away, he was murdered in Chicago. And he always kind of got to wonder, I mean, the timing lined up. So maybe they were saying, well, you know, we don't want him bombing any police, you know, the bomber. So we, but it's clear he wasn't the one who planted the bomb. He was out of the life at the time, basically not his own choosing, but it was, it looked like a setup to me, if you know what I mean. So. Yeah. Yeah, it's Machiavellian. You never knew know, sometimes yeah. what the real motive is behind what's going on. And a lot of times these guys lie. There's a guy in Fradiano's book, he's meeting with Chin Giganti, who's high up in the Genovese and eventually became the boss. He said, although this guy, Joseph Ulo, ran from me and I sent a guy after him, Calderazzo, and I think he got the jump on Calderazzo and killed him. But Ulo is also tight with Gigante, and he was responsible for several murders on the West Coast. And he was found with those 22 caliber guns from Miami, too. So was Chin just lying, trying to get Jimmy Fradiano to clean up his dirty laundry by just asking him to do a favor under false pretenses? I mean, you know, these stories these guys tell, it's hard to know what they're getting at or what they're trying to get one another to do. And, you know, it's a lot of digging around. And I, and I tried to, this article I wrote, I tried to say there's, there's no way of telling why these guys died. It's just odd that they suddenly all started to. You know, here in Kansas City, we had served a search warrant on Tuffy DeLuna's house. Carl Tuffy DeLuna, who was the underboss, skim investigation. And we found a piece of, actually, it was a copy of a page out of a book, I'd say. And it had instructions how to make a silencer. And it was a silencer for a 22 caliber semi-automatic pistol. Now, they never recovered any of those guns here. We recovered some guns after hits because that's the MO you just mm-hmm. like up in uh you can Giancana, you yeah, right. the hit, you keep the gun right long enough to get away as long as you don't need it anymore. As soon as you can, you get rid of that gun. And if you don't leave any used gloves and all that, why, you know, nobody can ever trace it back to you. They don't really try yeah. to hide it particularly. They just want to get rid of it. So uh, they were doing that. And during that same investigation, they were talking to a guy out in Las Vegas who was going to get them a long one. They kept saying, you know, specially built long one. <laughs> and we deduced that was some kind of a sniper rifle because they needed a labor and another conversation. They were talking about the need to kill this other Spiro brother at long distance. So it's a, you know, it's kind of <laughs> like the TV, but you got to fill in between the lines and there's this constant thing, you know, as far as those in leaks, I just stumbled on a story and recorded it like actually two or three months ago. I need to get it edited and out there, just recorded it myself about a guy named John T. Ambrose, who was a U.S. Marshal up in Chicago. Yeah, that's right. And, and during the family secrets trial, it was really interesting. He had a, was it his brother or his dad? It was his remember. father, wasn't it? father was Thomas Ambrose had been a Chicago policeman, and he was part of a crew called the Marquette 10. They were extorting money from bars and strip clubs and gambling games and narcotics dealers in Chicago, and had all gone to the penitentiary. His dad, his son, or yeah, his son, it was John Ambrose's U.S. Marshal, was helping guard Nick Calabrese, who was the key witness for that whole family secrets trial. And the Bureau had another hidden microphone going in a jail. And say so they heard, was it James Marcello? Or yeah, Mike? One it was of Marcello, two, yeah. Marcello, two of the Marcello brothers talking. 
And they're picking up these tidbits about how the babysitter was saying this, that, and the other about Calabrese. And so they picked up enough little clues that they put it together that this son of this Marquette 10 police officer was one of the people guarding <laughs> Calabrese. And so they confronted him and he finally broke down. They ended up convicting him. He broke down enough because they got his finger. They claimed that they had, he looked at the file and they got his fingerprints off the inside of the file, which was in the safe house. And he, there's no way he should have had his fingers inside that file. That broke him down. The trial was in 2007. So that was in 2005, 2006, when Calabrese was provided. And this is still the Chicago outfit was accessing a U.S. marshal based on who his father was to track down this informant. I mean, that's as late as after as 2005, 2006, yeah. if that was going on. I mean, like you said, just any little weakness. His father happened to have been a cop who was tied in. Any little chink in that armor, they would get right in. Yeah. Find like that first guy that you talked about. They find this guy who beats his wife and Mm-hmm. You know, he's a guy that wants to be tough and macho and be part of the mob, and at least drink with him and be a big man with them. Right. And he goes to his wife and next thing you know, you got information just flying out of that FBI office. It's always, we used to, I don't know, we even had a couple of different secretaries, particularly that we set up to see if they were checking on information. You'd put keywords in there and license plates in there, and then you'd put a, a trap on her name, on her code to get in the computer and see everything that she was pulling and it turned out she wasn't doing anything. She just liked to drink and party out there with some people. <laughs> you know, we'd rather she didn't, but you know, you can't really, I think they talked to her about some of those people, but she ended up quitting and she didn't like that being confined or constrained by <laughs> working there. So it's a constant. We'd have license plates every once in a while. Uh, we set up this one policeman, we fed him a license plate through an informant and then all of a sudden it got checked. Tried to, you know, it's funny. They tried to fire him over it and fo- asked for a full board hearing. And, and he got found. I think they found him guilty, but not to fire him, to let him stay. Huh. He's a policeman today. I saw his name not too long ago. So there was a trial somewhere recently. Some guy was using information and he was hacking using the information for something. And I forget the you know, circumstances, but they said, well, this is went before the Supreme Court. They said, well, he didn't do anything wrong. He has access to the information. He can access the information however he sees fit. I can't remember what he was using it for, but he did not get in trouble for accessing the information, even in his personal time. Right. Was- and then you got to prove, you know, what they did with it. We had, yeah. I did a show on this guy, this policeman, Bill Peast, New York policeman. He was selling information to Gotti during the Gotti trial. And they found a witness or two off of him. And he was just selling it for it because he was mad at the police department. He thought they screwed him over. He was in this position. He worked for their intelligence unit and he only had one leg. They kept him on after he had this car accident and he wanted a full medical and they wouldn't give it to him. They wanted to give him an off-duty, non-duty related medical. And he was mad about that. So he just stayed on and he was like a clerk. Mm-hmm. And he knew like where all the wiretaps were, everything that was going on that the intelligence unit knew this guy was in a position to know. And he went to another guy who went to Joe Butch Carrero, who went to Sammy the Bull. Of course, that ended up with Gotti because he exposed some bugs were in Sammy the Bull's office at the time. I wonder if Sammy wow. ever talks about that on his podcast. <laughs> you know, wife and I sat down and watched some of their show recently. 
maybe we'll turn off the recorder when I say that I watched a reality show recently <laughs> really? just to see what the hell it was all about. But, uh, did, did you know? Don't judge me, folks. Did, did you know that for five hundred dollars you can get a private thirty-minute Zoom call with Sammy the Bull Gravano? <laughs> I'm thinking about doing, I wonder if anybody paid money for to have a private Zoom call with me. <laughs> I might do that. I think, but I don't think I could get $500. I might do 50 bucks. They might pay 50 bucks no. for Zoom call with me. <laughs> if you can get me some of your listeners, some of the listeners' phone numbers and all, I might ask them for $5 not to, to have me not call them. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking, well, you know, if I could use the audio, in my podcast, I don't know, but I wouldn't invest $500 in that. I just wouldn't feel right. <laughs> I would like to get him on the podcast for a couple of reasons, partly to increase the listeners because you get hits like crazy on the Sammy the Bull Gravano. But I may be a whore, but I'm not a cheap whore. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Cam, you got anything else to say about this? Seems like we've kind of yeah, no, it just, uh, it was a really interesting thing to me. I thought when all this is going on, the mob even got through the FBI's security. They found yeah. just enough places where there was shared information in multiple locations. And they found that there would be clerks. They got in, they sort of backdoored the FBI, just like they did everybody else. It was not something that you don't see a lot that, you know, I had to sort of dig to find out that there were two of these stories. I don't think it's something the FBI is especially proud of having happened, but it was a pretty big deal. And when you look at the contemporaneous news stories, these 22 caliber killings and these informants disappearing, it was pretty well covered at the time. I think it was something they were really worried about before they stopped the Cleveland leak. It was really something the FBI was concerned about. They didn't know where the information was coming from. Yeah. All right, Cam. Well, I appreciate it. This has been a good show and I appreciate it. Folks, don't forget to hit me up on Venmo at Gangland Wire. Go to my website, got my new movie out, Ballot Theft, Burglary, Murder, and Cover-Up. That's a mouthful, but I want to describe what was in the movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's a heck of a story about the election of 1946 and how the mob rigged that. We had one brave woman here in Kansas City that testified against a mob guy and got him about two years in the penitentiary for uh, actually taking her vote away from her. He wouldn't let her vote. He was standing out in front. And he wouldn't let her go in and vote. He said he'd already voted for her. Partner said, yeah. He said, we're all Democrats here. And she was a Democrat, but this was a Democratic primary. And they wanted a certain Democrat to win and the other Democrat to lose. So she might have wanted to vote for the other Democrat. Right. She wasn't going to vote Republican. I got that. But anyway, <laughs> it's a pretty interesting story that I stumbled across. A friend of mine wrote a book about it called John the Egg. So anyhow, good to talk to you, Cam. Absolutely. I've got my sneaking up oh, plug yeah, here yeah. real quick. I've got my book. I do. I've got my, like you said, I'm, I am a cheap horse. So no, I've got my, uh, <laughs> I've got my book coming out, uh, Married to the Mob and Other Misadventures. I worked on with Lisa Swan, the ex-wife of Frank Calabrese Jr. And that is to the publisher now. They're working on cover right. mock-ups and everything. So that should be out before too long. And if you check out VPod TV. On YouTube, you can find episodes of our show inside the Chicago outfit that I work on with Paul Wickham and Nick Seifert. And we really do a deep dive discussing different aspects of the growth of the Chicago outfit. So check that out also. Yeah, they do, folks. I'd highly recommend that show. You got people that are connected closely, you know, even today to the outfit. So you can get some really good, solid information. You know, the, the Seifert, jo- is it Joy Seifert? 
Joey Seifert, yeah. Joe Seifert. See, his dad was Danny Seifert, who was killed by Joe Lombardo and then mm-hmm. Frank Sweets, there's no doubt about it. He was taking Teamsters yeah. money to start that business that he had, and then yeah. they wanted him to help launder, and, and he got nervous and didn't want to really help him launder the money from the skim in Las Vegas. Killed him right in front of his kids and his wife, yeah. the one son. It's quite a yeah. deal. And Seifert, he's working on a lot of different mob projects up there. Yeah, he is. Chicago. So keep watching that show and watching that some of those Chicago Outfit Facebook pages, and you'll learn a lot more about the outfit. All right, Cam. Thanks a lot. Talk to you later. <laughs> Absolutely, Gary. Thanks a lot. All right, bye. Bye. Well, folks, that ends another Gangland Wire episode. Just want to thank you all for listening and for all your nice Apple podcasts and other podcast app reviews and the nice comments you make on my YouTube page. And on my Facebook, and questions you ask on my Facebook pages. Now, as most of y'all know, I upload my Zoom interviews on YouTube so you can see what my guests look like in real life. And also put most of those on my Gangland Wire podcast Facebook group. And, and in regards to those Facebook groups, I've got two. One is the Facebook page, Gangland Wire Facebook page, and the other was my podcast group. And the group is smaller, and I monitor that pretty closely. So get on that. I want to thank Ken Couture and several others for keeping fresh content on my Facebook page. If you want more mob information you can shake a stick at, just go to the Gangland Wire Podcast Facebook group. And remember, if you support the podcast with donations, you'll get an invite to my monthly live Zoom calls where we'll share stories, answer questions, and sometimes have guest speakers. And in general, we have a good time. A lot of guys will be sitting back in their den with a cigar and, and a drink and And uh, we just have a really good time on those monthly Zoom calls. The main method of making a donation is on my website donate page. You can use a credit card or use PayPal. But you can also buy me a cup of coffee or shot in the beer with your Venmo app or make any donation that you want to make. If you do it on Venmo, make sure you get me an email if you want to be on my Zoom call. I ask for donations to help do my next documentary and a lot of you guys really responded big time and i've been able to pay people and it's going to have a little higher production values than what i've had before i'm getting really close to completing it it's about kansas city organized crime and politics i have a title finally it's boat fraud here again politics and the mob and don't forget about my previous documentaries gangland wire skimming from las vegas and brothers against brothers the savella spiro war both of those can be purchased or rented on amazon now, finally, the last thing I'm selling, and then I'll leave y'all alone, is my book, Leaving Vegas, the true story of how FBI wiretaps ended mob domination of Las Vegas casinos. Now, that title is a mouthful. Now, if you're going to get that book, you're going to find that I used a lot of the actual wiretap transcripts from the skimming investigation. And if you get the Kindle version, I got the audios from those wiretaps. And you just click on a link and you'll go to that other website and it will allow you to listen to all those wiretaps. I think that's kind of unusual. So go to Amazon and get that book and get it in the Kindle version. And if you don't have a Kindle, Amazon has free Kindle software for your tablet or your phone. Now I'm going to let you guys go. But first, I want to say that Gangland Wire supports the Veterans Administration. Their programs that help veterans out with PTSD. You can get help with their hotline, 800-873-8255. And then push one, or you can go to their website, www.ptsd.va.gov. Thanks a lot for listening, and I must credit all of our music to our good friend and Frank Costello expert, Casey McBride from Portland, Oregon. Check out Casey's Frank Costello Facebook page, Uncle Frank's Place. Thanks, Casey. (laughs) 